transforming your processes. Ideally, something that's core to your business, right? If you can can really leverage AI there, you have a big competitive advantage uh, over, well, uh, the others in the market because they are stuck with the old process. Welcome to Flat Silica's We Talk IoT. We'll chat with innovators, experts, and business owners to learn how they are implementing IoT and using data to create new business opportunities. I am your host, Stephanie Ruth Hader. Artificial intelligence is changing the way we live and work, and its impact is being felt across every industry, from natural language processing and image recognition to predictive analytics and automation. Join us as we discuss the state of artificial intelligence, the latest advancements, opportunities and challenges that lie ahead. Today my guest is Dr. Björn Bringmann, Managing Director of Deloitte's AI Institute, and I'm looking forward to a fascinating discussion about the future of artificial intelligence. Welcome Björn, how are you today? Thank you Ruth, I'm great. <laughs> looking forward to our discussion. Maybe you could kick us off with quickly introducing yourself and your role at Deloitte. Absolutely happy to do so. Myself, I think the one thing I always say when people ask me, what do you do in AI? My answer is usually I don't do anything else. I started with this topic about 20 years ago. I didn't really know what I would get into back then. Um, hmm. After 10 years of research roundabout, um, people was like, so what do you do? And my answer was usually, you know, I don't know what exactly, but it's a lot of fun. And then the real world caught up. And since then, I'm now about 10, 12 years within consulting, working on AI topics left and right. Lots of explanations, lots of demystifications going on, uh, but mm. also obviously use case discussions, implementation strategy, all this stuff. And um, that's also where the AI Institute comes in, which is part of Deloitte and a globally distributed group of AI thought leaders, if you like, that help together uh, to push this forward. And what put you on my radar is I think Deloitte has just recently published the newest release of your annual global study about the state of artificial intelligence, where you have spoken to lots of enterprises around the world. Maybe I, I can let you explain it yourself later. But you have spoken to many enterprises and uh, interviewed them on their adoption and usage of AI. Is that correct? Absolutely. Luckily, didn't have to talk to all 2,600 plus myself, but yes. Yeah. So 2,600 across the world, or did you focus on specific markets and industries? The survey didn't have any specific industry focus in this case, so it was meant to be very broad, so designed to be very broad, so there you can actually draw lots of insights across the world and across industries. We did uh, limit it to... I would need to count now like a bit more than a dozen countries. So for most of these countries, we could also do a deep dive. Um, mm -hmm. So not not every country's data is in there, but it's it's very widely spread. So there's India in there, Brazil is in there, Japan, Germany, the US, of course, Israel and many others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. And is there anything in particular that stands out for this year? Well, stands out is a good question. The good news, so to speak, is it's all mm -hmm. moving forward pretty much all around the world, companies have kind of deployed more types of AI and have also achieved more results with AI. So usually we measure not just a simple maturity, so to speak, but we have uh, what we call our transformer model, basically, where we say, okay, there are some companies that haven't really deployed lots of different AI applications yet, say computer vision or robotics process automation is also included here, or 
predictive elements of some kind. And on the other side, we, we also try to measure how many different outcomes were achieved, right? And then mm -hmm. you have companies that haven't deployed that much yet and haven't achieved that much yet. So they are pretty much the starters. And on the other hand, companies that have deployed lots of different types of AI and achieved lots of different types of AI. So we can really say they are transforming into an insight-driven organization or an AI-fueled organization. And those we call uh, transformers. And then mm -hmm. you have some in the in the other corner, so to speak, the, the path seekers that are achieving quite a bit compared to what they deployed and, and the unfortunate underachievers, um, which is also not a small group, um, which is the, the enterprise that really try a lot, so they deploy a lot, but somehow outcomes are lacking. Do you know what the reason is for them lacking? There is, luckily or unfortunately, uh, depending on how you put it, no one reason for all of them. Mm. I think what's interesting up front is that we asked, like the initial question is basically, how relevant is this topic for you in the future, right? So to put into perspective the, the different categories. And on a global average, 94%, so you could say almost everyone, right? 19 out of 20, 94% say that this is a critical topic for their business in the near future, in the next five years, right? And then it becomes indeed surprising that there are some which have a hard time achieving these goals. So we looked at, at different things like culture and implementations of these ideas. And then we found uh, quite some insights that is um, culture topics seem to be very important, but mm -hmm. also how you change your operations and that you need to align. It's not just about technology. So obviously you need technology to, to make this work, uh, but you also need the people, you need the talent to make it work. Mm -hmm. And those two need to be aligned. So if you just have great people, but no data and tech they can work with, that's not really going to work. If you only have amazing technology, but nobody can use it or, you know, ne neither build it nor use the outcome, that also won't work. So this needs to be orchestrated quite well. Yeah, it's really interesting because um, over the course of the last few episodes on this podcast, mindset and culture change is basically the one common denominator whenever I ask somebody what are the challenges, what are the hurdles for the future, I think culture and mindset is always number one. So is it the skills that are missing or is it, you said it's a mixture, sometimes it's the lack of data and the lack of skills and it's a, it's a variety of things or is there something like, for example, is this maybe also a regional culture problem like Have you found out that maybe in Germany it's better or worse than maybe the rest of the world? Let me take on Germany first, because indeed we mm -hmm. had a dedicated look on the German part of the survey to see how it compares to the rest of the world. Right Now, one thing that was really surprising is that the number of so-called transformers in Germany mm -hmm. is significantly higher than the global average. Oh, Which indeed surprised us. So we looked and we said like, oh, we must have done the calculation wrong. So we double checked, but <laughs> no, that was all fine. So indeed, there seem to be in in the part of the survey, so for Germany, that's that's about 150 participants. There seem to be quite many that have, according to what they stated, of course, we, we didn't go in the companies and double check, hmm. um, so that have deployed lots of different types of technology and also have achieved quite a bit. Uh, now, you must know that the, the quadrant, obviously, is, you know, once you make it into the transformers, it doesn't matter if you are like, let's say, a small transformer or a big one. Mm -hmm. And one of the first insights we've seen is that pretty much all German transformers are just transformers. So they just deployed enough to make it into this quadrant and they just achieved enough results. So they're just on the edge, but still they are transformers. Now, this quadrant is moving every year, mm -hmm. right? So if they won't move forward and won't deploy and achieve more, so to speak, then uh, next year and the survey is run again this year, 
they will basically end up being starters again. Now we look deeper into what the reasons for this might be, like how they got there and what the problem is, because it's quite surprising when you compare to other services that say, well, Germany, you know, is lacking this and is lacking that. Aspirations, the will, the too much risk. And, you know, it's a, it's a long list that we try to find because I believe in, in many of our colleagues and also our clients have said it's a crucial topic. And by the way, also for Germany, there's obviously a huge number of companies that say it's really important. It's 87% in Germany. And that's the lowest number from all the countries we've seen. So in Germany, oh, wow. it's it's close to 90%. It looks big, but compared to the other countries we looked at, it's actually a small number. And one of the big challenges that Germany seems to have, despite being quite good in for now achieving and deploying, is that all categories which are related to culture that we asked, mm-hmm. Germany is lacking, you know, 10 percentage points pretty much compared to global average. And in about half of them, Germany is actually always the last. So once we saw this, we were really like, okay, there seems to be a cultural problem here. And the the big worry we have, and since it's a double blind review, we don't know who the companies in in detail were. And they didn't know we asked. We can't really go in and check, obviously, the, the single answers. If these companies do not work on the cultural aspects, this will have been a short term victory, right? Because mm-hmm. at the end, it stands and falls with the culture. If the people don't trust the systems or if they don't accept it, if they don't integrate it into their workflows, uh, which is all the questions we ask in culture, then, then this is going to be very hard to keep up. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect. I wanted to ask you, what do you mean with culture? But you already um, gave some hints. It means that people are skeptical about AI. They're scared of it. They don't understand it. Or what is the... What is the framing for for the culture question? Agility and willingness to change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how important is that considered? And that's something where, again, Germany is 67%, luckily very high. So everybody sees that as a, as a very important topic. It's the highest, in fact. But again, it's like 12 percentage points below what the world thinks, so to speak. But these type of topics are also how important it is to be fluent in data, to really understand what data is, what it means, how to use it. That's lacking a lot confidence or trust that the adoption will put or will not put rather uh, jobs at risk, right? So there's a there's quite a significant fear that people are going to be put out of jobs. Though mm-hmm. luckily, it's apparently decreasing. Executive vision around AI, that that's useful. That's scaringly low in Germany. Hmm. And also the penetration across the workforce. So really, you know, how important is it that everybody's using it, that everybody has understood it? That's just half in Germany, whereas globally, it's three quarters. So these type of questions, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's a bit scary, to be honest. And especially now with a certain AI chatbot that has been causing quite the press hype in Germany, I think, and around the world, I suppose. But when you follow the German press coverage about it, I think it's very skeptical, very fear-driven. They always focus on the worst-case scenarios. Maybe that's something that is a little bit part of the German culture anyway. But um, I find it very interesting that once you read a different newspaper from the United States, you would always read about the potential of the usage of artificial intelligence. And I'm, I read a quote somewhere when somebody was asked, don't you fear that AI will substitute you and the job you have? And then this person said, I don't think it's AI who will replace me but people who won't use AI will be replaced in their jobs. I absolutely agree. I also Mm. love this quote, right? So AI won't replace you. A person using AI will. 
Mm. And I think ah, yes, it pretty much, it it yeah. pretty much <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of reading it day by day, I think. I think that really nails it, right? Mm. And that's pretty much also what you what you see and, and also what we postulate. I mean, we are speaking from the age of with, right? So not from the age of against the machine, but but indeed the age of with, mm. uh, with the machines working together. And I think one of the almost boring examples by now is um, chess computers are, you know, well known and it's you know we have all seen Gary Kasparov basically lose uh, first public match against a machine where the grandmaster in chess actually yeah uh, mm. was defeated now that sounds as if uh, computers are better at chess than humans and that might be true in this case but once you actually have a computer playing against a pair of a computer and a human chess player mm-hmm. then usually this pair wins because then you have the benefits of both in a team yeah. And this holds true for many other cases. I mean, a, an example that, that's almost trivial and hardly considered AI anymore is if you jump in any kind of modern car, you don't need a car anymore, you have your navigation system with you, most of them. Well, I do. And it's just a lot easier to get to the target. Now, we all know autonomous cars don't really work yet. And at least by now, I'm pretty sure that if you would drive without a navigation system, if it's not just, you know, the path you drive every day and you really know by heart, then you're probably worse than if you would have used it. So this is another everyday mm. example of human-machine collaboration. And more dangerous, isn't it? Because I, I remember a time being in my one of my first cars with a huge street map folded in front of me. <laughs> but you were not paying attention to the road. And then, I don't know, you had to fold the map because you were going to the edges. So And then at the same time still driving and trying to observe the traffic. So it's actually also safer to use technology in this case. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I love this example. I guess I never had that experience myself, <laughs> but it's similar for many other things. If you use a technology that can basically take care of the long tail of problems, so speak, mm. all the small noise that can be kind of handled automatically, and you are left, if you like, as a human with a maybe more challenging tasks, but certainly also more interesting tasks. You don't have to take care of the average stuff anymore. Yeah. That feels like it should be automated anyhow, most of the time. And instead, you can take care of this. And there are these different concepts, right? It's not like AI is doing the task or I'm doing the task. There are lots of ideas of human in the loop, human on the loop. So all these ideas of how exactly would this collaboration look like? Mm. And at the end of the day, whatever you do with technology or you know analytics, machine learning, AI, it will need to lead to some kind of action in the end to have an impact. Yeah. And in almost all cases, the part of the system, so to speak, triggering the action is actually human. There, there are a few exceptions and they may increase, right? Spam filters are my, my favorite examples for no human involved because that would defeat the whole purpose. <laughs> but that's actually, that's a key piece, I think, where humans are in and uh, creativity of humans or the trigger. So humans are setting the goal, right? Mm. Um, and without a goal, no machine can, can do anything. This podcast was brought to you by Ahmed Zilika, the engineers of evolution. If you want to learn more about us, we have put information and links in this episode's show notes, and you can also connect with us on LinkedIn or avnet-silica.com. That's A-V-N-E-T-S-I-L-I-C-A.com. Yeah, and especially in the case of this uh, now very famous chatbot, I don't want to overstress this example. I, as a journalist, I don't feel threatened. I'm actually quite excited about it because there are some routine tasks when writing pieces, storyboards for podcasts, articles that 
take me a lot of time and effort because sometimes I'm rushed. I don't have too much time. I have too much on my plate. And I would be super happy if I had a little helper that, for example, short texts or um, short transcripts helping me to scan yeah, research material, helping it me summarize stuff, understand stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's a good example. And I think the how accessible it, it has recently become plays, mm. plays a major role here, right? So spam filter, you kind of all know, but we don't really directly work with it. Now, the topic that you mentioned is basically the, the bigger topic of generative AI, which is a, a class of, of systems, so to speak, um, that was more or less born in 2014, where the output is not just a number, right? Or some kind of label, like good or bad, but it's actually an image or a text or a voice or something like this. And um, they have become incredibly good over the recent years, you know, mm. due to all the stories of technology and data and, and everybody has heard by now, I think. And they're producing outputs that previously have been considered almost impossible to be produced by these machines and are now um, on some levels very human-like, and which can be confusing. And I think for images, I think that's a very nice example where the output is very easy evaluated, right? Especially drawing humans is still very hard. <laughs> And sometimes you can nicely see, at least in the initial models, uh, it's a while since I played with the image ones, you could see that the complex complex parts like human faces weren't so easy. Mm. There's actually a website where that's just generating human faces and they pretty much all look real. It makes few mistakes, if at all. But the other thing is also like how these systems work. So they learn certain parts of the image that are relevant to a keyword, right? So if you think, and that, that's a wonderful example, I think if you think about fish, Right. Mm -hmm. Whenever there's a fish on on an image, not not always, but in many cases, it's a person holding the fish. Right. Okay. So when yeah. an AI was used to draw a fish, uh, quite often it would have hands on the fish <laughs> because that's what it has seen a lot. Yeah. Right. So and these there are these things um, which you know glitches if you like, but which are not necessarily easy easy to fix. And and that also is I think it's interesting that people can now play with these tools and and get a feeling for what they can and cannot do. Mm -hmm. And I would hope this will help in the discussion, also help in the integration, because that's another part we've seen is you need to rethink your processes, right, to make these things work. Like playing with them is great, but it's like telling a joke. It's fun, but you don't really get anything out of it after the first experience. If you want to actually make them useful in whatever process you have, you need to integrate them properly. And most of the time, that means you have to change your process so you can actually leverage the full potential of these technologies of AI and machine learning. Is there any current or upcoming AI initiative project that you are particularly excited about? Something you're looking forward to? Probably many of them. I'm looking forward to everything that moves in the real world, to be honest. Mm -hmm. It's just incredibly tangible. Moving as in the, cars? Or sorry, what do you mean anything, exactly? Anything that moves. Uh, literally anything. I think <laughs> it's it's great if you have uh, machines around you that, that can help, right? I would love to have a cleaning robot at home. Uh, we have a vacuum robot at home, but, you know, it, it's doing a great job. I'm not going to complain, mm -hmm. but it feels like there could be so much more. <laughs> um, but once, you know, once you get in there and talk to these people, it's just not that easy. Mm. And the other thing is indeed... I'm very curious to see how the whole topic of generative AI will evolve, right? Uh, so that's from a poor fascination of the technology topic, so to speak. Uh, what I hope will also really evolve is that uh, people don't just always jump on the fancy stuff when we want to use the technology, right? So kind of be a bit down to earth. Um, there's so much of this technology which is reasonably mature. Mm -hmm. You know, depends on which part you pick. It's, it's a huge array of things. And really putting those to use. And what I would love is if we indeed see this change that companies say like, ah, okay, we trust that we have a combination of man and machine that can work together. 
And to make that happen, we change the process, right? So have quicker processes. Like I, I think a good example is when you call up a call center, mm. right? There used to be these IVRs, right? Where it says like, press one if you want to continue in English, press two if you want German, and then it goes on. And at some point you get an information that doesn't help you. Mm. By now, these systems have gotten a lot better and can handle many of these incoming calls, which have, you know, default questions in a way, such that the people or that the hard question, so to speak, can be rooted to the people and you as a consumer, when, when you call, you don't have to wait for two hours to talk to a person, but you get to a person a lot quicker and these systems get a lot better. And I think that's something I would be excited to see in many other parts where it's useful, but certainly coming back to the ethics and the human and low part, I think we always have to make sure that we don't kind of separate humans from humans by putting machines in between. Mm -hmm. um, because then if there's a problem arising that hasn't been known, there's this kind of machine wall in the middle where it's really hard to get through sometimes. And I think that's something where we really need to look to avoid and always make sure that there's kind of a, an emergency button, if you like, that allows to check on exceptions, which are which are crucial. Yeah, that's probably also true, especially when you when you think about industrial IoT settings that... Yeah, you need to be able to press a red button and put a stop to whatever the industrial machine is doing at the moment, right? Yes, mm. that's that's the most the most visual example, right? You you don't and you want to have something similar in basically these machines as well, these automations as well, mm. when they are not in the physical world, right? Mm. Yeah. But in the industry, I mean, there are more and more. What I think is interesting is the usually when you think about robots in the industry, you think about you know, manufacturers where you have all these kind of orange and yellow, green, I think were the famous colors, mm -hmm. robots that are standing at the assembly line and, and welding, right? There are sparks flying around and it's fast and they're all kind of moving in a wonderful orchestra. Is something that's also existing for a while already, but maybe not that popular yet is those smaller robots. They look almost cuddly, right? They're round. They don't have edges. They're moving a lot slower. And they hardly have any force. You know, the, the big machines, they can easily lift a car. And, and that's what they have to do. Mm. You can't stand next to such a robot. It's incredibly dangerous, right? Because it doesn't see you. It doesn't have any value in terms of like, there's a human, I should be careful. It's just going to move where it wants to move. And you stand there, tough luck. Whereas the other robots, if you want to work with them, are basically designed to not be able to hurt you, right? And I think this is also something which is interesting. And if you put more and more intelligence on these machines, you, you can probably see how the a digital world of AI, so to speak, will, will merge more and more with the physical world of robots and come up with more autonomous robots and not just single robots, but whole interacting systems. We can have fantasies and visions about how, you know, dark factories in, in the future could look like, like a factory where there's no human in it, but maybe also places where you have humans and machines mix and ideally there would be light then. Is there a common myth about AI that you can share with us? I think there are way too many. Mm. I think many of the myths kind of come from science fiction movies. And their AI, in most cases, is depicted evil. Mm. And, you know, when you've been in the machines, but of course, the outcome could turn into something that's reasonably evil. But there's a famous paperclip example from Lee Bostrom. I'm sure quite many of, uh, of your listeners have heard about it. But the idea is really, and, and it's it's an example, right, to show the case. If you would have a machine that you can teach, right, or that you, well, that you just give an objective and you say, like, I want to make lots of paperclips because you want to start a paperclip business and you just want to sell lots of paperclips. And you say to the machine, well, please, you know, go ahead, make as many paperclips as you can. 
initially the machine might just, and it's, you know, it's an intelligent, it's a very intelligent machine in this case, right? So initially it might start making paper clips the usual way. And at some point it will run out of resources for the usual way, or just may find cheaper ways. And if you think this through, the machine in the example case just turns the whole world, like literally the whole planet into paper clips. The underlying problem is how do we make sure that the machines understand our human values? For somebody who is now from your definition of the survey only in the starting quadrant, if you wanted to move to become a transformer in AI, what advice would you give? What should they look into? And what is the recommendation you would have? Yeah, that's a very good point. Like, I think one thing up front is if you look at investments, many or pretty much all companies in those four quadrants are indeed investing increasing amounts into developing AI. Interestingly, the path seekers, so the ones that already achieve quite a bit but haven't deployed that much, are the ones that invest most, right? Which makes sense because you see that it works, now you want to have more of this. So one thing is certainly that you want to make sure that there are achievements, right? Which is pick the right use cases, pick the right things. You don't want to just do something shiny because that's going to work for a short moment and everybody will be like, ooh, that's a cool thing. But if it doesn't generate any actual impact for the business, it's going to be gone as fast as it showed up. So it should be really things that are relevant to your business and can actually have an impact. Quite obviously, if you can start with very low risk ones, like the classic low hanging fruits, And you should always think about having a series of use cases. One use case, you know, unless you're a search engine and that's your only use case, you can put hundreds of top talent on, on this use case. Most companies don't have that. So they will have a, a portfolio of use cases. And then it helps a lot to align those use cases in a, in a similar corner, so to speak. So you don't have to build a whole new tech stack for every new use case. So that, that's one part. The other ones are really make sure that your technology and your talent is aligned. You don't want to have talent that's bored, right? And you don't want to have technology that's unused. So that, that needs to go hand in hand. Quite often the talent knows which technology they need, right? So maybe having a fast process to get the technology once the talent is there is helpful. The culture piece, obviously, you know, people shouldn't be afraid of using this. People should be excited. And I think there are many, many reasons to be excited about it. If indeed everybody is excited, then the last part, so speak, transforming your processes, ideally something that's core to your business, right? If you can really leverage AI there, you have a big competitive advantage uh, over, well, the others in the market because they are stuck with the old process. And if you manage to find a new one and you don't have to shift, you know, turn off the old one on one day and start the new one on the same day, sometimes this technology doesn't get the results you wanted, certainly when it's the more aspirational things, because it's used for topics where we don't know how to do it yet, right? So it's unclear if the technology can resolve it in all of these cases. So if some don't fail, similar with startups, just make sure the portfolio as a whole would be a success. But don't bet just on one use case because it, it looked nice at the beginning. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Björn, for your time. It has been really interesting to, um, to listen to your insights and your expertise and all the data and the valuable lessons that came out of your AI service. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Ruth. It was a pleasure. And I learned a lot about driving with maps, I think it's fun. <laughs> this was Avnet Silicast We Talk IoT. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a rating. Talk to you soon.